Well, hi, everyone. It's good to see you uh, on Zoom. Even though we can't meet face-to-face, it's great nonetheless to be able to have the technology to meet, to hear from God's Word. Well, from 2009 to 2011, Julie and I were part of a fantastic team uh, in East Asia, a multicultural team made up of Brits, uh, Aussies and East Asians. Uh, And every one of us on on that team had significant struggles uh, in their lives. Graham and Alison, the team leaders, had lost a little girl uh, when she was only a few weeks old. And Graham continued to struggle with significant depression and stress and migraines. Matt, who was uh, a single bloke on our team, had deep depression at times. And he would go for weeks on end when he would be off the radar, uh, out of contact with our team and other people. Joy, a single lady, uh, had debilitating chronic illness that she struggled with. And in case you think that, uh, get the impression that Julie and I were any different, that we had life together, we didn't. We would regularly feel like we were barely holding on uh, to life by a thread. And it was only the grace of God that allowed us to keep going. Life just seemed so hard for all of us. And this isn't just the experience of missionaries on the, on the mission field. I know that for many of you, that's a normal reality of daily life. Why is it like that? Why do we as God's people so often struggle? Why, when we plug along, seeking to be as faithful as we can, is life difficult. Sometimes it's not just everyday difficulties. Sometimes it's major disasters. If God loves us and uh, we are faithful to him, why do things so often seem to go belly up? Well, Revelation 12 answers those questions. God makes it clear in this passage that we have an enemy who is like a roaring lion who is very real, who hates us and hates God and wants to do everything he can to crush us. But that's not the final word. That fearsome dragon, Satan, is also a defeated enemy and God promises us the final victory, as we'll see, because of the blood of Jesus. So Revelation 12 is a poetic way of explaining why the world is the way that it is, that suffering is real for the world and real for God's people. But at the end of the day, it's also a message of hope and a message of reassurance that we need not fear anything that Satan can throw our way because in the end his doom is sealed and our future with Jesus is assured. Well, let's pray as we come together uh, to God's word. Father, we give you thanks that as Revelation 12 makes clear, the war is over. The battle continues, but Satan is a defeated enemy. Thank you that we are on the winning side because of the blood of Jesus. Please help us today to believe that, to understand that, and to live that. Amen. Well, I've got three points uh, as we work through Revelation 12. Uh, We start off looking at the two sides that are drawn in the battle, uh, the woman and the dragon. Second point, we'll look at what happens in the battle. And then finally, we'll see 
in our third point, the result of the battle, that Jesus wins and the dragon is defeated. So first point, uh, two sides, the combatants in, the, in, in our battle. On one side is a woman. Um, we, we see her described in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Who is this woman? Well, we told in verse 17 that our offspring are those who keep the testimony of Jesus. She represents the church. And at the same time, it's very likely that she represents Mary, the mother of Jesus. Have a look with me at verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. This son isn't just any random male child. He's the one that is spoken of in, in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 that says, He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's God's king, the Messiah, who will break the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus is the male child who will rule with an iron scepter. So the woman is both the church and Mary, the mother of Jesus. But in verse 1, she's the church. She is clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet. And on her head, she has a crown of 12 stars. This is a picture of glory. This is a picture of one shining like the sun, reflecting God's glory. She, the church, is a picture of the beauty and glory of God and the gospel. It's a precious thing. It can be hard to see when we're, when we, when we're in the midst of the, of the mud and mess of ordinary life. But, uh, and, and from a human perspective, we often just see the weaknesses and failings of the people who make up the church, don't we, which is us. Uh, and, and those failings are very real. Um, but Revelation shows us what is a reality behind what is more real a reality that is more real. What we see, what we call reality that we see on earth is really just a pale shadow of the reality that's revealed when the curtains are drawn back in the book of Revelation, and that includes Revelation 12. Revelation shows the way that things really are. The curtain has been drawn back and Sweat Kingsgrave, Sweat Bankstown, Beverly Hills Anglican and every other church in Sydney and across the world are shown to shine like the sun and to reflect God's glory. That is who we are. Then in contrast, we have an enemy of the woman who makes war on her. Have a look at verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Dragons almost always represent a fearful and powerful foe. 
I used to play a computer game called Warlords uh, back in the dark ages. My sons mocked me forever, ever playing that game. In Warlords, you used to have to fight various armies. Ordinary infantry were uh, level two and they were relative easy beats. Then things like griffins and pegasus, I don't know how you say that word, pegasi, uh, flying horses were level six and they were pretty strong. But dragons were the ultimate. They were level nine. They were the ultimate in, um, foe. And here Satan is depicted as a dragon because he is a ferocious enemy. He's got seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. Now, I'm not sure why he's got seven heads, but the horns in Revelation represent power. And ten horns means a lot of power. Crowns represent authority. In the New Testament, this world is this our world is sometimes described as Satan's domain, Satan's realm, coming under his authority. God has allowed him to have real power in this world over those who belong to the world rather than to God. So the battle lines are drawn. The dragon stands before the woman to wage war against her. And he has one goal in this war, and it's found in verse 4. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. Why is he so set on devouring this child of the woman? Because he is the one thing standing in the way of his evil purpose of destroying humanity destroying them by turning them away from their creator, the living God, turning them away from life and wholeness, turning us away from the author of life and subjecting us to a life of slavery to sin and death. And so we come to the battle, point two. We just saw that the dragon is intent on devouring this male child, but his plans are thwarted. The boy is born, but then he's taken up to God on his throne, verse 5, and the woman flees into the wilderness. Now, it seems quite likely that this is pointing towards what really happened in history after Jesus is born uh, and King Herod got wind that the Messiah is born in Bethlehem and tried to have him killed. Uh, you may know the story of where Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt uh, to escape until King Herod dies. But as we've seen before in Revelation, this symbolism isn't meant to, to lie too closely with actual historical events. And so it is here because the baby boy is taken up to heaven and protected by God. And that didn't actually happen in history, did it? Uh, baby Jesus was not taken up in heaven. Um, it, it did happen. It did actually happen, but in the resurrection of uh, Jesus the man after he was crucified, but not when he was a baby. The key to reading this chapter and the whole of Revelation is to see the big picture and not get caught up in the individual details. And the big picture here is that God protects the child and the woman, as well as we'll see shortly, the dragon is defeated. And so back to the story. After the child is taken into heaven, there's war between the angels and the dragon. The dragon is defeated. He's thrown down to earth. He then pursues the woman. 
He tries to drown her with a torrent of water coming out of his mouth. But once again, he's thwarted as the earth swallows up the water and protects the woman. The chapter then ends on an ominous note. Have a look at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The dragon turns his fury from the woman to her offspring, to the people of God. The chapter ends with no conclusion to this war. The dragon is defeated, but he's still fighting on. In fact, there's no conclusion until chapter 20 of Revelation when Satan's defeat is final and complete. But for now, the battle rages on. Now, we've noticed before that most of Revelation, and that includes chapter 12, is describing the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That's the whole of the history of the church represented in this book. And so it is with this battle. Satan is now at war with the church. And so we can understand what this battle is like because it's our battle. So in order to understand what this battle is like, I want to highlight the two weapons that we are up against in Satan's armoury that are mentioned here. And the first one is mentioned in verse 9. Have a look at it with me. Deceit. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. The word for leading astray here is deceiver. Satan deceives the whole world. This is crucial for us to understand. We aren't dealing with a world who is neutral towards God and towards Christians. We are dealing with people all around us who are blinded by the truth, blinded to the truth by Satan. Let me suggest one area that people where we see people blinded and deceived, and it's the area of guilt. It's the idea that guilt is bad. In our culture, to feel guilty is like a disease that we need to get rid of. Now, often feelings of guilt are bad if there's nothing we should feel guilty about. But the Bible tells us that there is a real place for guilt. Guilt can be real and it can be good for us because it convicts us to sin. It points to a real problem, our sin and being guilty before God. Our world, though, tells us that all guilt is bad. The idea of sin is ridiculous. It's a carryover from old-fashioned values that were designed to oppress us and to hold us back from being authentic and free. Satan has deceived our world into thinking that salvation isn't about finding forgiveness with God. It's about finding forgiveness from yourself, with yourself and learning to be your true, authentic self. Instead of being a world that is lost and hopeless without God in slavery to sin, Satan deceives us into thinking that we're all people with unlimited potential to be whoever we want, to be uh, 
whoever we want to be and that we're absolutely free to realize that potential. And as Christians, we can get sucked into that lie as well. Oh, we still believe in Jesus. We still believe the gospel. But we can often water it down, can't we? Myself included, I'm guilty of that. Where we hold out the gospel to people as a nice add-on to life that they might want to consider rather than being the only hope for a dying world. The gospel can become like offering an upgrade to business class for someone flying economy and we forget that it's actually, what it actually is, is throwing a life jacket, a lifeline to someone who's drowning. Well, the second weapon that Satan uses is accusation. Have a look at verse 10. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day before, accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. The first weapon, deception, is mainly used against unbelievers. But this one, accusation, is aimed squarely at the heart of the believer. And it's a deadly, fearful weapon. I mentioned guilt a moment ago that there's a right guilt to convict us of our sin, but there's also a false guilt as well. And as believers, we're particularly prone to that false guilt. Perhaps you're feeling this vague sense of inadequacy in your Christian life. Perhaps you're feeling that you don't measure up, that your motives aren't perfect, that you don't do enough in catching up with non-Christian friends, that your prayer life isn't up to scratch, that it's all over the place, that you don't love God as you know you should. should. Friends, these kind of vague feelings that you need to pull your socks up, that God can't accept you because you're not good enough, that comes straight from the mouth of Satan, the deceiver. In Jesus, there is now no condemnation because Jesus himself died to set us free from guilt. Or perhaps you're suffering from ongoing illness or looking after someone who is. Perhaps you have a relationship with your parents or a friend or children that is broken and it seems that God is punishing you for some reason. That's what happened to Job. Satan wanted Job to blame God and to stop trusting in his goodness. But in the end, God said that Job had done nothing wrong and that his love had never left Job. Don't listen to Satan's lies, that his love and approval must equal a good life and plain sailing. Don't believe it that sickness, relationships break, breakdowns, even failed marriages, disasters at work signal that God no longer loves you. No. What all these things tell us, what all these things are, is the normal expected result of this battle between Satan and God's people. The battle is real, friends. We need to be ready for it. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is hope because victory is assured. We are on the winning side. 
and that's our third point. Yes, the dragon is still around. He continues to make war against God's people, but it's a war that has already been won. Have a look at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Victory, it has already come, past tense. It has come through the Messiah, God's King, the Lamb who was slain. Verse 11, the they who have triumphed over us is referring to Christians, God's people, to us. We have triumphed over Satan by using two weapons, the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Firstly, the blood of the Lamb. If you were with us earlier in the year when we did the first part of Revelation, you'll remember that Jesus is described as a Lamb who was slain. That's picking up on the Old Testament laws where a perfect Lamb had to be sacrificed for the sin of the people, not once, but regularly, year after year and its blood was sprinkled on the altar of God in order to bring forgiveness. But as I said, it was only ever temporary. It had to be done time and time again. That's because God is perfect and he cannot tolerate sin and the people had to constantly make themselves right before God. They were constantly reminded of their imperfection. God was with them but he was also separate because of his holiness. They were a guilty people who couldn't just waltz in and meet with God as they wanted to. But Jesus provided a solution for us to come to God face to face. He sacrificed himself as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb. His blood paid for all of our sin, not once, not just once a year, but for all time. Gone is our guilt. Gone is that barrier, that great chasm between God and us. If you trust in the blood of Jesus, you can be confident that you are right before God. And so if you aren't yet a believer here today, I want to encourage you. In fact, I want to urge you to put your trust not in yourself but in Jesus' death on the cross as the way that you get right with God. And for the rest of us listening today who are believers, the blood of Jesus is what we trust in, what we lean on, and it's the way that we defeat Satan. I say we defeat him, but it's really God who defeats him and not us. It's his work. We just need to accept that, accept that it's his blood that covers us. And through that blood, Satan is defeated. Because his weapon 
of accusation is neutralized. He's now far left firing blanks at us. It can no longer touch us. Instead of condemnation, we now have forgiveness. And the second weapon that we use to defeat Satan is the word of our testimony. We're given a clue about what that means in the phrase that comes after it. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So the context is that the early Christians reading this letter, that would have meant, they would have recognised, that would have meant standing up and admitting that they were Christians before a hostile Roman government that demanded them to worship the emperor. And if they refused, as many of them did, and they said that they worshipped Jesus alone, quite often they faced death for that stand, for that testimony. Now, of course, we don't face that same grim prospect, do we? But it's not hard to apply the principle. We defeat Satan by taking a stand and testifying that our loyalty lies not with the gods of this world, but with the lamb who was slain, with Jesus whose blood has brought us forgiveness. And it's not like we do that by our own effort, by our own determination and strength. Our testimony is a reflection of God's grace. As we understand his forgiveness, as we take on the reality of his blood taking away our sin. Our testimony is just to say that I was starving, but now I have found the way to the breadline. I was lost, but now I found my way home. I want to finish off by giving an example of how you have defeated Satan that I've actually witnessed and I've been so encouraged to do so over these last few weeks. I've been so encouraged and proud of you, the way that you've persevered in church during lockdown. You may not have thought of it this way, but in making a priority of live stream church and our Zoom church and making a priority of CG, you have been testifying to the truth of the gospel. You have been nailing your flag to the mast and showing where your loyalty lies. Not only has attendance been good on Sundays and midweek at CG, but uh, at the recent CG leaders meeting, you leaders made an effort to come to the leaders meeting in record numbers. And I know how hard that is on a, on a Wednesday night midweek after work to do another Zoom meeting. And then I was really encouraged to have record numbers at the um, Unreached People Group Mission Prayer Meeting last Friday. So encouraging. As well as that, I'm aware of many stories of you going the extra mile, encouraging one another on WhatsApp with catch-ups, praying for one another. All those things bear testimony to the fact that you are choosing to live by a reality that's defined by the gospel. You are choosing to reject the gods of this world and say that say that prayer is useless. Meeting together for church when we can't even be face to face is a waste of time. That's what the gods of this world say. 
but instead you were choosing a reality where you acknowledge that the blood of Jesus has made you his and you are now a forgiven child of God. By doing all that, you are disarming Satan and rendering him harmless. Oh, yeah, he's still there. Yes, we're still in the battle, but the victory has been won. We are on the winning side. The Lamb has conquered by his blood. Well, friends, let's continue to proclaim that together in song as a way of testifying by our word that Jesus' blood has won the victory.